Now, we live in an increasingly automated world. A world that's run less and less by humans making decisions and that's run more and more by intelligence that is, you know, for lack of a better term, artificial, right? Like, I don't know if you really realize, and, and, and we kind of have to think about it a little bit because it's become such an integrated part of our lives, but I don't know if you realize how much we already depend on what is essentially AI, you know, we are, as a society, running full force toward it. If you think about it, algorithms really determine not just what we watch, but what we are supposed to want to watch. It gives us our recommendations, what we are, in many cases, allowed to eat. I mean, forget getting the fastest route. Uh, we really want the car to drive us around. We depend on our devices to wake us up, to tell us when it's optimal to sleep, to keep the thermostat at the best temperature, the one that we like, to determine when and how we should work out and how much. A calendar on our phones manages our lives. It stores all of your contacts. Do you even know anybody's phone number? <laughs> Probably not. It keeps all your appointments and our social media feeds tell us literally at this point what day it is and why it matters what day it is because I have trouble these days differentiating Tuesday from Thursday. I don't know if any of you guys are in that boat. Whether we realize it or not, recommendation algorithms and automated flowcharts run our world. Imagine if Google went down. <laughs> What would we know? What information would we have access to? If you didn't have your calendar, your contacts, nor could, uh, could you search Google for information, what would you have? Only what's in your brain. And yet, for most of society, it's not enough. We want, we, we literally want AI to wake us up, to brush our teeth, to pick our clothes, to get us dressed, to drive us to work, and then do our work for us when we get there. And that's what society is moving toward. We won't stop until all of life is on autopilot. So it's no surprise that when we step into Christianity, that's what we want. We want automatic faith. We want automated faith. But automated faith is essentially artificial faith. It's not genuine. It's not real. It is not authentic. It's like those elaborately made paper mache desserts. Have you guys ever seen that? Like they have these things where they, they'll take paper mache and they'll make this crazy like cake. And it looks really real. It looks real. Sometimes even... You, you know, I mean, you get really close up and you think it's actually edible. And that's kind of how this kind of automated faith that we desire is. It may resemble faith. It may even sound like faith at times. It may even feel like faith at times. And yet one bite will tell you it's not authentic faith. Now we're starting a new series today called Authentic Faith in an Artificial World. And the question we are going to look at throughout this series is, how can we grasp onto authentic faith? 
How can we grasp onto a faith that is real and genuine and powerful in a world that is increasingly artificial? That's, that's the question we're going to be looking at throughout this series and that we will be looking at today as well. And so if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4. And we're going to start, our main, our main passage will start in verse 11, but we're gonna, we have to get a little bit before that for the context. So we're going to start in verse 8. So Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8 through, I want to get through 16. I honestly am not sure if we'll get all the way through it, but uh, we're going to try. So we're going to start in verse 8 here. And this is God's word, and it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Okay, now what is this rest that is being referenced here uh, in, in verses 8 through 11 and really all throughout chapter 4. So if we back up a little bit in chapter 4 all the way back to verse 1 to 7, and I'll kind of just roughly summarize it. Um, well, actually, really, the argument of the book of Hebrews, going back to the beginning, is really Hebrews is about Jesus being better. Okay, if we were to put it real simply, it's about Jesus being better and at the beginning, it talks about how Jesus is better than the angels. And then uh, the author of Hebrews gets into how Jesus is better than Moses. And it discusses kind of the people of the time of Moses. And remember, Moses, uh, well, let's go back even further, all the way to Abraham. Remember, God gives this promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. He calls him out of his country. He says, I'm going to make you into a new uh, people. Right, so I'm going to give you your own land. I'm going to, I promise you, Jesus, uh, God promises Abraham this land and to make him into this great family and this great nation. And he, said, and he calls him out of his land to go into this new land and this new people that God is going to create. Now, hundreds of years later, Moses is hundreds of years after that. You know, because the people are in slavery in Egypt. Moses comes, he frees the slaves out of Egypt. And remember, they, they go into the wilderness Right now, there's this moment while the people are in the wilderness, they're spying out the land. If you remember from Numbers 13, there's this passage where uh, Moses sends like 12 spies into the land of Canaan to check it out. They come back. Ten of the spies say, we can't do it. There's these giant peoples there. You know, it's scary. Even though they say it's a land flowing with milk and honey, it seems like it's this very uh, great place. You know, there's all these amazing resources there. God has something for us. You know, it seems like really because this is the promised land, it's, it's great. But there are these challenges. There are these obstacles that we're not going to be able to defeat. And remember, only Joshua and Caleb are the ones who have courage and they have faith. And they say, no, we can do it. But they're overridden by the other 10 spies. So the people don't go into the land and they fail. They don't enter God's rest. So what is this rest that's being talked about here? Now, so there's a few things 
Okay. One, we can see that it's, it's this peace of mind and heart that God offers. So more than just being the physical, it is kind of this physical, natural resource that seems like God is giving his people this land. But more metaphorically, what God is offering, you know, that was kind of metaphorical. I mean, it was obviously, it was literal, but it was also more deeply, there was a more deep spiritual connection there that God was saying, essentially, it is to trust in me. Trust that I'm going to provide for you. Trust that I'm the one who's going to give you the land. That's what Joshua and Caleb were saying. Who cares who's there? Because God has promised this land to us, but the other people didn't go along with it. And so that whole generation died out. They did not enter God's promised land. They didn't enter the rest. That's the first level. Now, the second level, though, is that there is rest ultimately in the promise of heaven. Okay, so it's not just the land, the physical land that's there. Later, the author of Hebrews talks about, okay, well, it's also this future rest. This knowledge that this world is not all that there is. And there's this ultimate rest in heaven that's greater than than the rest we have here. So we don't have to search this world for ultimate rest because ultimate rest lies in heaven with God. And Hebrews 11, you know, talks about this, that all the people of faith, they did not look only to the earthly rest, but they looked to this future heavenly rest. Okay, now, but there's this third level, and it's brought up in this passage, particularly in verse 8. If we look at verse 8 again, it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So right there in verse 8, it says, if, if Joshua had given them rest. Now Joshua was the one who actually took them into the land of Canaan. Right? So it's not, it can't just be that physical place. It can't just be that God is providing this change of venue, that that, having faith in God for that earthly rest could not be ultimately the rest. It is rest in, ultimately, rest in Christ. Rest in Christ from work, the work that the guilt and shame of sin causes. It is to rest in the work of Christ. So there is this, the first level is to trust that God is going to provide really for my earthly physical needs. The second level is the rest in knowing that there is this future heavenly rest. But the third level is that there is this present rest that I can have from work. From the work of having to work off my own sin. From the work of me doing it and instead just trusting in Christ. That's the rest. Now, that whole thing was kind of background because the main point is in verse 11. Let's look at verse 11 one more time. Does let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So here is kind of the first point here to have authentic faith. To have authentic faith, we must strive 
to enter the rest that God offers. To have authentic faith, we must strive. We must be diligent. We must be vigilant to enter the rest that God offers. And in fact, this is repeated throughout the book of Hebrews. This is kind of the main point of Hebrews. Right? That, you know, it's about Jesus being better. And it's about us. There are all these warnings. There are all these warnings about forgetting that. And there are all these exhortations about being vigilant to remember that. See, for us, like faith starts at some point, right? You hear the gospel, you make a decision, you do either, you know, some kind of altar call or you go to the baptismal, you make the confession. And too many of us expect that from there on, it's on autopilot. And this text is telling us, make no mistake, there's nothing automatic about Christianity. Because remember, automated faith is just artificial faith. It's not real. Because a faith that is automated is a faith that is never truly tested, nor is it ever exercised. If it just happens automatically, if you don't have to wrestle, if you don't have to consider, if you don't have to argue with yourself and others about faith, about what you believe, then why would you expect that that is a faith that's living? It's not a faith that's living. It's a robot. It's dead. It has no life, no soul. If you aren't challenged to change through church, through others, through the word, to consider deeply your plans and have to ultimately, sometimes, excruciatingly submit those to God, even though you don't want to. If you never do that, then that's not real faith. That's not authentic faith. Church, we need to fight vigorously, zealously for faith. And I have to say that because too often I, I, I hear this sentiment and I sense this sentiment from Christians. That the fight for faith is what causes unrest. Like people mistakenly think this. And I think it, it's part of the allure of sin. It's part of the deception of sin and Satan. But people mistakenly think, if I follow God too hard, I'll get tired. If I, if I read the Bible too much, if I pray too much, if I'm too missional, if I serve too much, if I do too much stuff for God, I'll get tired. Now, this passage says the opposite of that. Right, like, like, and, and don't get me wrong, you'll be physically tired if you do those things, of course. But in your heart and your, and your spirit, you'll be much more alive and empowered. And many of you can testify to this. It's not when you, you, you were too zealous for the word and for the glory of God and for mission. That wasn't the time that you felt tired. That wasn't the time, like, not, and I don't mean physically tired again. I mean, like, in your spirit, weary. Those aren't the times that you feel that. The time that you feel that is when you're trying to fight without authentic faith. The times when we feel weary and tired is when we fight for self-righteousness. For self-righteousness, when I have to prove myself that I am good. 
by the things that I do. That is, of course, that is wearying. That is tiring to the soul. The fight for self-worth, that is, to, to try to create worth out of yourself dependent on what you do and what people think of you, that is so tiring. That is exhausting to try to think about what everybody thinks about you. To try to think about how everything you do is seen by other people. But make no mistake, the passage here says, the people of God did not enter God's rest, not because they fought too hard for faith, but because they gave up the fight for faith. They said, forget it. God said, here's my promise. Go into the land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. You will have everything that you need. And the other nations, they're going to fear you because I am going to deliver you in battle. I promise you peace and joy and rest. And the people of God said, no, forget that. Those giants are too strong. Those obstacles are too big. That's too scary. That's too risky. Why'd you bring us out here, God? Let us go back to Egypt where we were slaves. That's why they didn't enter God's rest. Let us go back to Egypt, God, where we were safe. And we didn't have to exercise faith. We didn't have to trust in you. And that's why they didn't enter God's rest. Church, to have authentic faith, we must fight diligently. We must strive daily to enter the rest of God in Christ. To put our faith actively in the gospel. Now let's, let's move on. Let's, we're going to reread verse 11 and then we're going to go down through verse 13. It says, let us therefore once again strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience for the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account Now, the question is, how do we strive to enter that rest? And if you look in verse 12, it doesn't say, read the Bible. It's, no, it says, for the word of God is living and active. Do you see that? What is the connection between verse 11 and verse 12? Let's strive to enter that rest. And then it just says, for the word of God is living and active. It doesn't say, read the Bible. Because there is an assumption that if you are going to strive to enter the rest of God, you will need the word. Right? If I were trying to sell you something, if I were trying to sell you a car, I could either say, buy this car. Or I could say, this car is amazing. It goes zero to 60 in one second. It looks beautiful, right? Like it drives itself. It there's a heads-up display on it. By the way, it also flies. By the way, it can go underwater. By the way, it can't get stolen. You know, it's, it's, it's connected to you, just like biometric sensors. You walk up to it. It drives up to you. It sticks you in it. It doesn't need gas. It doesn't even need to be solar-powered. You know, like... I could say all that, and I could say, oh, it's, oh, by the way, it's $10. And you would say, give me the car, I want it. 
And so God doesn't say, read the Bible. He says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It is more dangerous than any weapon in the world. Right? More, more destructive than a nuclear bomb. Piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. What is the point of that? It's saying the word of God penetrates us very deeply. More than anything else in the world can. The word of God reveals what's worth trusting and what is not worth trusting. Now, why is that important? This is Hebrews 3, 12 to 13. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Emphasis mine. But the deceitfulness of sin. What does that mean? It means sin is belief in a lie. Can we agree on that? The only reason you sin is because you believe the lie of sin at the moment of sin. That things will go better for you if you sin. If I cheat right now, then it will give me, there's a promise connected to it. It will give me a better life in the future. If I lie right now, then somebody's going to think something better of me, and that's going to be better for me in the future. That's going to provide me some kind of future happiness. Right? If I take revenge right now, if I don't forgive right now, it's going to teach that person a lesson, and that's going to give me happiness. If I gossip right now, it's going to make me feel a little bit better. It's going to make that person look a little bit worse, and it's going to earn something for me in the future. If I just keep my mouth shut right now and don't say anything about God right now, then it's going to give me security in my job, which is going to provide for me. If I just let out some kind of anger right now, if I let, if I just step into the greed right now, if I just step into the lust right now, if I just step into whatever sin is presented before me right now is going to provide me a happier and a better life. It is to believe in the lie, in the promise that sin offers us, the deceitfulness. Now, in, um, in storytelling, there is this kind of mechanism that people use. It's called uh, the unreliable narrator, right? And an unreliable narrator is a narrator whose credibility is compromised or called into question, right? There are a lot of movies like this, like Memento or like Shutter Island or like, you know, The Joker, right? There's these, you watch the movie and, and parts of the movie, they seem like it's going a certain way. And then all of a sudden, right, usually there's this twist. And what happens is at the twist, suddenly everything you've seen is called into question. You're like, wait a minute, that's weird because that goes against something that I saw earlier, right? You're like, wait a minute, that isn't, you know, so we, the audience, at some point, we realize everything we've seen hasn't been 100% true, but at least some of it has been painted by the person telling the story or whoever's, whomever's perspective you are seeing the story from. 
right? And then usually the truth is brought to light. Sometimes not, you know, not always, but usually the truth is brought to light. And then you're like, what? He's been dead the whole time, <laughs> right? And then you're like, whoa, like now. And then you go back, right? And I'm talking about the, the sixth sense. Sorry, spoiler for any of you who haven't seen a movie that's 20 years old. But, you know, he's, he's you know, you go back through the movie and then you say, oh, wow, he never actually touched the check, right? He only, the chair was already pulled out. You know, you go back and you reinterpret the movie. See, the world is full of such unreliable narrators. Now, we think, I think we think most of it is harmless. You know, ball is life, you know, because you're worth it. A diamond is forever. Nothing is impossible, you know. The ultimate driving machine. Like, most of it, we think, is, is harmless. We think, that's what we think. But what we don't realize is a lot of it we are actually believing. Some of it we don't even question, like, for example, the news. You know, but you could look at the same event on CNN and Fox News, and, of course, you will see two completely, it will look like two different events. The world is full of unreliable narrators. In fact, you and I are unreliable narrators. We do it all the time. Because someone's social media feed will not fit their actual life. In fact, your social media feed can look like you're having the time of your life. And in your heart, you may feel incredibly depressed. You may feel lonely. You may feel hurt. See, too many of us, we're just stuck living in act two of the movie of an unreliable narrator. We are believing things that are not true from people who do not tell true stories. But there is a true story and a reliable storyteller to whom we have direct access. Look at Hebrews 1. This is how Hebrews starts. It says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent to theirs. Jesus, the ultimate revelation of truth, is accessible to us. The exact imprint of the nature of of God, the one who upholds the universe by his power. Jesus is superior to all the previous ways God spoke to his people. See, we need that reliable narrator in our lives. To have authentic faith, you need to trust in the reliable narrator that is the word of God, that is the gospel of Christ. The truth of God's word penetrates our every guard. It goes through. If it goes through bones and marrow, 
We can be sure that it penetrates our accessories, our devices, our feeds, our affiliations, our interests, not to mention our clothes, not to mention our bodies, not to mention our makeup, into our souls and our spirits and hearts. It peers into your core. And it discloses what's found there, what promises lie there in your deepest heart. And this sword that is the word of God is two-edged, meaning it can sharply convict us of the presence of sin or it can convince us of the merit of the pursuit of God. So yes, it does reveal hidden sin in our hearts and it also reveals the hidden true passions of our hearts. The word of God, to have authentic faith, we must place our trust in the word of God, which is the reliable narrator that we need. I'm going to close with just a few applications. Okay, first of all, let your own judgments, let your own judgment be exposed. Now I'm going to ask you something, okay? Right now, can you think of truths in Scripture that you're just uncomfortable with? Are there beliefs that you prescribe to, but you kind of like, part of you wishes it wasn't true? I'll give you a bunch, bunch of examples just from, just from Matthew. Okay, just from, uh, really, these, most of these are from the Sermon on the Mount. This is, I'm just going to read some of these verses out to you. Okay, this is Matthew 5, 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. I think most of us would agree with that. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the f- hell of fire. This is Matthew 5, 28, a little bit later. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of the members of your, whole, of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. It's a little bit later in verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is Matthew 6. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Do you know that when you pray the Lord's Prayer, you're saying, God, forgive me like I forgive other people. And the inverse of that would be, if I don't forgive other people, don't forgive me. A little later, chapter 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And so on and so forth. See, the word is more trustworthy than your gut feeling, than your intuition, than your sense, even of the spirit. Because you're not going to come up with stuff like that on your own. See, nobody can dispute your feelings and your intuitions alone, right? If you say, this is what I feel like God is telling me, 
Nobody can say anything to you, right? Because you alone are the interpreter of that. But if we rely on the word and we say, you know what, I'm going to follow the word, whatever the word says, even if I don't feel like it, even if I don't want to do it. This is why we need the word. So let your own judgment be exposed. Secondly, let the false promises of sin be exposed. Let the false promises of sin be exposed. Now, this is going to relate to the the first thing that I said about our own judgment. Um, So first thing is confess sin. Now, let's actually, let's read the end of this passage. I guess we did get to it. But um, if we can look here. Verse 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, I could do a whole thing. Um, on this passage too, but for the sake of time, I won't. Um, now, what I'll what I'll say here though is, it says, "Enter the throne of grace with con-, you know, come approach Jesus with confidence, knowing that you can confess sin and be forgiven." In fact, um, the only sin really that we can repent of is one we've been already forgiven for. So if we believe that we have to change to be forgiven, then that's backwards. In fact, you'll never change unless you already believe that you're forgiven. So I would say confess sin. But here's the other thing, and this is what many of us have much more trouble with. Confess things that you're uncertain of. Because a lot of us do this. We keep something hidden in our hearts. You know, that maybe we want to share, but we don't share. And here's what we tell ourselves. I don't want to share it yet because I'm not sure what I feel about it. Or I'm not sure what I think about it. You know, I do this, and I've had many conversations with people regarding this. But I want to encourage you to share things because often, this is not always the case, but often the reason we don't share is because we don't want to be wrong. We don't want someone to tell us we're wrong. We have little problem saying that we are wrong if we're, if we're presenting it, if we know it, right? We have little issues saying, hey, here's, usually we have little issues saying, hey, here's what's going on and I know I'm wrong and this is where I'm wrong. But what we don't like is when we say something and then someone else tells us we're wrong. When someone else exposes something in us, when someone, and we might not know it, unbeknownst to us somebody else says hey you know but maybe it's this i mean loving it could be lovingly it can be word centered but we really don't like that and what i would say is have courage to allow the false promises of sin and maybe lapse in our own judgment to be exposed by saying you know what i'm not really sure if this is right or wrong this is what i'm thinking and this is what i feel and i'm open to you telling me i'm wrong that's the only way that the false promises of sin, the deepest ones in our hearts, because here's the thing. For many of us, it started when we were very young. There was a promise that got latched into the deepest part of our hearts about sin. 
And this is the only way that it will be confronted and exposed through the word of God in our own study, but also through church and also through the people of God. And the final thing I would say is this, turn toward the true promises of God because God has amazing promises for us. Amazing promises. Here's what Jesus wants to say to us. As long as you have doubts and fears and insecurity, Jesus is saying to you, I will persist in proving that I'm greater than those. Jesus wants to say to you, my success is greater than your failure. My defense of you is greater than anyone's accusation of you, including ones that come out of your own heart, including ones that come from Satan. My purpose for you is greater than the opportunity or the limits of a job, of a path, of a career, of a relationship. My strength for you is greater than your weakness. In fact, it is made more complete, more perfect in your weakness. You don't have to prove yourself to me or to anyone, for I have demonstrated the value that you have to me and my love for you on the cross. And that will never change that will never be taken away, that will never be reversed. Those are the powerful promises and many, many more throughout God's word that come from the true story, from a reliable narrator that God wants to tell us every single day, every single morning as we go to him and trust in him and strive to enter his rest. So strive to enter that rest, church. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much that in the midst of a world that is pushing us to have really less and less autonomy that is pushing us to artificial faith, to automated faith. That in a world full of deceptive, albeit at times convincing, half-truths, we have the full truth of the gospel. We have the reliable narrator of the creator of the universe at our disposal accessible to us that we have the exact imprint of the nature of God the radiance of the glory of God near us who wants to be in relationship with us who wants to guide us who wants to teach us who wants to fellowship with us God we have you we have Christ we have your spirit. We thank you so much, God, and we pray that you would give us faith, that you would give us zeal, that you would give us passion to want to step more deeply, more powerfully into the true rest that you offer us every single day. We entrust it to you, God. We thank you so much. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.